Over here. Over here. Turn around. Stick around. Falsetto out. Yo, Falsetto, what's your favorite line and scene from this slick flick pick? When dealing with such a splendiferous film, in this case, the third of three, the third chapter of the Predator trilogy, which would ultimately go on to be more like a massive saga franchise. But if you think about it in sheer terms of numerics, Predators from 2010 is the third Predator movie in the general cookie-cutter Predator vein. And since I love this film deeply, madly, and truly, it's a three-way tie on the dialogue, and it's a three-way tie on my favorite scene. Favorite line of dialogue number one. It's between Isabel and Royce. Isabel starts, What happened to you? What made you so fucked up? There is no hunting like the hunting of a man. And those who have hunted armed men long enough and like it never really care for anything else thereafter. That's pretty poetic. Did you come up with that all by yourself? No, actually. That was Hemingway. Now, being a fellow poet, I really appreciate the literary aspect and implication of that line. It's the typical soldier poet. Think of Viggo Mortensen in G.I. Jane. Think about Liam Neeson in the film The Grey. Great shit. My second favorite scene of dialogue in Predators is Hanzo, who happens to be my favorite character. He's the Yakuza quasi-contemporary samurai talking with Edwin, played by Topher Grace. Hanzo starts, This is old. Very old. They've been doing this for a long time. So you speak English? Yes. Why don't you say more? He holds up his left hand, revealing his pinky and ring finger have been chopped off, samurai style, yakuza style, and he says, Because I talk too much. I love Hanzo. Great character. He totally embodies the role. Doesn't need to talk much. He wears his character on his face, in his gait, in his clothing. But this fool is a total fucking badass. There's a lot of backstory there. I love Hanzo so much. I would have been delighted to watch a prequel just focusing on his time as a Yakuza or some type of overlap cross world where he and a predator are working together, or just he and a predator are hunting each other. But this dude takes off his fucking shoes in the middle of the otherworldly rainforest because he doesn't want to get him covered in mud. This guy has nothing but a pistol, and then ultimately swaps it out for a samurai sword. I love Hanzo. Last scene of dialogue. Between Isabel and Royce, Isabel starts. I saw more parachutes. Which way? Why? so I can figure out who threw me out of a fucking airplane. Ooh, man, that dialogue. Now remember, this is first and foremost a sci-fi action flick. They could have spent no time on dialogue, and few would have taken exception. But when they do speak in this film, for the vast majority of the time, the dialogue works, and it works like a well-oiled weapon on the Predator's shoulder. There were some contender lines of dialogue, Edwin, Royce, and Isabel. Edwin, excuse me, just what the hell is going on here? We're being hunted. The cages. The soldier. All of us. 
all brought here for the same purpose. This planet is a game preserve, and we're the game. Now I know, that makes for a great trailer scene, but it also works very well in the movie. In case you didn't notice, we just got flushed out. They sent the dogs in, just like if you were stalking boar or shooting quail. They split us apart and they watched, testing us. How do you know this? Because that's what I would do. And lastly, Ronald Nolan, played by the great Lawrence, aka Larry Fishburne, talking to Royce. So Nolan, there's two different types of them out there. Now they're similar, but they're different. It's kind of like the difference between dogs and wolves. The ones that are running things up here, the larger ones, hunt the smaller ones. It's some kind of blood feud, I guess. Been going on for a long time. They do this just for sport? Oh yeah. They bring in fresh meat, season after season. I mean, shit, you wouldn't believe. Bring it in, hunt it, and kill it. In that order. Great dialogue. Great cameo appearance from Mr. Lawrence Fishburne. My three-way favorite scenes. Tough, but I was able to pick three. When the Falcon, now this is a Falcon drone, it's an electronic Falcon, returns to the, the Falconer, like the Falconer Predator, at the Berserker Predator's base camp, after an extremely intense gunfight, just the way this digital drone Falcon lands on the Falconer Predator, they're at base camp, their invisibility cloak goes away, you can see the outline of their terrifying frames. It's just such a great shot. And then the falconer turns around and looks at the dog handler that has the tusks. And then he turns to look at their alpha leader, the sleek Black Dawn Berserker Predator. And it's just fucking awesome. It's also the first time that you clearly get to see these predators in their full fucking form. My second favorite scene is the moment that this ragtag band of miscreants realize that they are on an otherworldly other world. The way that it shows the multiple moons, the way that it shows the stationary sun, they're in the rings of Saturn or some shit in the background. It just looks really cool. And if you knew nothing about this film via the trailers in advance, when you get that reveal that they're on an alien planet, that's pretty fucking colossal. So to me, it's a jaw-dropping moment if you didn't know. But even if you know, it's still very visually appealing and shocking. My third favorite scene, which is probably my favorite of all of the scenes, but it's when you have the samurai versus the falconer, and they fight to the death. Mutual destruction likely, here it's confirmed. It is such a perfect scene. Everything that happens for the hour before this scene adds up completely. This is a completely apropos ending for the Yakuza. And it is, of course, a very fitting ending for the Falconer Predator. Usually, even with these Berserker Predators, if you take just your traditional Predator, I know, <laughs> we're talking about degrees of lunacy here. But if you take your standard Predator from the first film or the second film, if you challenge them mano y mano, they will take you up on that. Look at King Willie. King Willie had a sword. So the Predator, the urban Predator, had to attack him. Mono Imano. He did not use his shoulder cannon. He didn't use shit other than his wrist blades. But in this case, it's unclear because these berserker predators, that's what they're called, berserker predators, they don't seem to give a shit. They don't seem to follow the same doctrine and discipline that the lesser predators follow. So when he has his standoff with the predator and his great showdown in the tall grass field, kind of like with Billy, 
It would have really felt like a cheap shot if the Predator had just blasted him away. But the Predator doesn't. He is amused. So they fight to the death. And I could not have shot this film better. Because with that type of swordplay, you've seen these movies like Kill Bill and The Last Samurai, where they seem to go on forever with this limitless pool of energy. With the amount of ferocity that this Yakuza is using this sword, he only has so much energy. And he is battling with this creature that's about four times his size. It has to be over quickly to be believable. So each strike of the sword is visceral, and I buy it. I totally buy it. But it also really sells the fact that this guy is giving his life for the greater good. But in his mind, he's doing the most honorable thing with the shitty circumstances before him. And this predator is more than happy to accept his bladed challenge. And I have seen this scene numerous times, and I think without a question, without a doubt, with no equivocations, that is the greatest scene in the entire film that's almost one hour and 50 minutes long. So I really like the standoff between Yakuza and between the Falconer. Great shit. Greetings, cinematic fanatics. Allow me, me and Othello, the pleasure. Yes, Othello is in attendance this evening. He is laying to my left on the recliner chair. He's somewhere between groggy and mildly awake. But this guy wanted to be here today to be my wing cat. And wing cat he is. But allow us the pleasure of ushering you through the dense jungle thicket of a quasi-terrestrial hunting parcel of dreadlocked berserker alien land where the air is, in fact, breathable, human skull trophies retrievable, poisonous flora and grotesque fauna conceivable. If you're hip to the garden variety predator, this berserker breed remains believable, but surviving here seems far removed from achievable. And the hunting pack of predator-tusked bloodhounds remains both imperceivable and unbelievable. These hunting grounds are designed for human apex predator sheep. You'll see a white light, then freefall whilst asleep. This new breed of warriors creep as well as they leap. They'll shadow, stalk you, appear, linger, and disperse, all without one peep. They've amassed of human and other species skulls, an impressive heap atop this gruesome pyramid discovery of bones, blood, and DNA unknown. I offer a crash cushion pad for this fallen Yakuza samurai to fall upon when he bequeaths his life to the greater good of dwindling comrades, enacting the code of death before dishonor, dismemberment, and being divorced from your skull and spine in this otherworldly, planetary, tropical trophy treat of Slick Flick Pick, an entertaining Slick Flick Explaining series, a desirable diversion from the main vein of Chemohawk Sessions. You are my cinematic fanatic, I, and Othello of course, your worthwhile fucking cinephiles. Othello has watched just as many flicks as I. In fact, interesting little trivia. 
Ever notice how you're sitting there with your creature of comfort, whether it be a dog, a cat, a llama, a barracuda, an orangutan? It matters not. But have you ever noticed how you're sitting there watching programming and they're fast asleep? And then some massive kaboom explosion occurs on the screen and they don't react at all. No twitch of the muscle, no raising of the eyelid, nothing. I imagine this is because while they hear something, they don't smell anything. They don't smell any threat. That is why I assume they don't give a shit. One man's opinion. For your 27th, wow, 27 slick flick picks, somebody has an obsession with film. That is I. But for your 27th slick flick pick review, Othello and I review one of our most prized entries in the Predator franchise, a sequel that still owns the screen, secures my attention, shocks my senses with its ability to mesmerize. You'll laser fucking focus, not blink your eyes, though all we can do, discerning their origins, is theorize. We will not believe the bad Dr. Edwin's lies. And while this film is familiar comfort flick fanfare, there's still surprise to be felt by this flick's power to our attention snare and its unrelenting prowess to scare. One of the armored trifecta pilots of Falcon drone, the other sports tusks picked from slain bloodhound bone, but their leader, the blacked out berserker, proves twice as vicious when left all alone. This Predator sequel, a financially applauded, critically mixed flick, remains intense, gorgeous, grotesque, comforting, yet a welcome deviation, and so very lime green gooey, muddy, and bloody slick. Adrian is not Arnold, but with his lean soldier physique, you can call him Adrian the soldier body Brody. And through his agility, grit, and raspy voice, he gives we, the viewers, no choice but to accept his swagger while he swings that alien axe dagger into the skull of the berserker. This is a slick flick that red laser marks and energy projectile launches into a trio of genres. One genre for each berserker predator, sci-fi, action, thriller. It transitions so seamlessly between genres and off simultaneously in such a way that you process it as a simple study in filmmaking sleekness. I offer you, regarding this tried but still quite true, predator world-building, culture-expanding, littered with colorfully barbaric fatalities, last true Predator sequel that offers firm finality to a loosely attached trilogy with Predators, circa July 2010. While the cast is overtly typecast, they all bring their own flair, sport their distinct weaponry and gear, and ladle our senses with their distinct flavor. Hanzo does Royce a hell of a favor. I remain rather crestfallen that the Yakuza Enforcer got sliced and iced. He was my favorite character whom, for a longer screen presence, I wished to savor. This flick never lingers. It moves with the efficiency of the initial entry in this saga, the very first. 
When Stans shouts, hunt my dick, he reminds us he's one of the worst. But Hanzo is missing two, count him two digits, due to the confessed fact that he talks too much. He remains my all-time favorite Predator world character, aside from Dutch. Recline, cinematic fanatics, in your favorite well-worn, stale chair. Rustle up some popcorn, fresh as fuck, the antithesis to that stale-ass chair I just mentioned. Zoom in and zone out as we unwind the daily grind with a slick flick pick. Predators is the flick, so very slick, hence my pick. When slick flick pick is near, samurai swords stick around till falsetto prophet's voice you hear. Lights, camera, action, lens distraction, and with the right slick flick pick, grant satisfaction. I'm your worthwhile cinephile. Your my cinematic fanatic. Together, we excitement unlock and run down the real world's unimaginative clock while feasting our eyes on this second sequel, granting commendable closure of an initial trilogy, Slick Flick Pick Prize. Enter with me, you cinematic fanatics, into the realm of film's fantasy while we unwind the grind of reality. I offer you Pick 27. Slick Flick Pick. Yaucha versus Yakuza. When Old World Meets Other World. Predators 2010. Today, we discuss how to set a deadfall five times the weight of your target animal prey. Those characters who prove most memorable with little to say. That Royce gets both Battlefield Glory and the Hot Sniper, but it was Hanzo who saved the Predator fucking day. No matter the role, Lawrence Fishburne's acting chops hold goddamn sway. And even if you play dead to bait this new breed of hunters, you, they'll poke, stab, spine rip, and fillet. Your worthwhile cinephile, praying for, not pray for, the Predators, falsetto profit. Attention, cinematic fanatics. The Yauchja, that's Y-A-O-O-T-J-A for pronunciation purposes, Yauchja, that's Y-A-U-T-J-A, commonly known as predators, are a sapient, spacefaring species of extraterrestrial humanoids, a race of hunters that continuously seek human and exotic prey. The Yauchja originate from the predator homeworld. Does that not answer the lingering question of what the fuck a predator is and where the shit does it come from? I rest my case. Quick little shout out to my main man, Wham Bam Cam. I hope you're doing good, buddy. Now, Wham Bam Cam was actually a special guest who helped me review Predator and Predator 2. Predators is not his favorite film, but I sure love the shit out of it. So that is why I am bringing that triangle to a close myself. But I hope that he's doing well, and I know that he has a lot going on in his life. I actually have been behind on releasing some white-collar black belt episodes because I have been so entranced by the delivery of these slick flick picks. But I can tell you that some new episodes of the traditional white-collar black belt will be coming soon, and one of the topics will be time management, not working too hard for your fucked employer, and always remembering to take care of yourself. 
Because at the end of the day, when you're alone, tired, or injured, it's not going to be your workplace or your employer that brings you herbal tea and saltine crackers. It's going to be a loved one, somebody who cares about you far more than any employer could ever hope to, or any employer is probably allowed to, because they would likely be stepping outside of their bailiwick, if you know what I'm saying. But this is such a great flick as a kind reminder. I started these slick flick picks because I love the shit out of film. Back in the day when I was younger, when I was an early teen, all the cool kids were out partying, smoking the reefer, the ganja. Hell, they were doing crack cocaine on spoons that they borrowed from their mother's china cabinet. But not I. No, no, I attended no drug parties. I instead was at home watching films that I had rented from Blockbuster Video. Ah, Blockbuster Video. That was my oasis, my vacation while at home. It kept me out of much trouble, and it kept me far away from the street urchins. So I feel like I owe a significant chunk of my life to film. And I am completely surrounded and enveloped by these framed movie posters that I have on my wall in my studio. I have about 75 posters all positioned very strategically straight, of course. I don't own a poster for every single film, nor every slick flick pick, but I sure as shit have a Predator shrine. In fact, I've got a Predator. It's like a graphic novel art representation in a frame, courtesy of none other than Wham Bam Cam, and I have a frame poster of Predator from The Predator, which came out just a handful of years ago, which I saw with Wham Bam Cam in the theater, and I liked it. It was highly enjoyable. But it will probably not make slick flick picks because there are several reasons why I do slick flick picks. One is because I have a tremendous obsession with cinematic adventures. The second is because I feel certain films are so vital in their importance to our consumer culture, to all walks of life. And I think that by talking about some of these films, we either keep them alive or we pump new life into their veins, thus immortalizing them for all time. And I would say that the vast majority, not all, but the overwhelming majority of these slick flick picks, they scratch a certain nugget of nostalgia in my cockles. And this film, the 2010 Predators, I remember seeing a trailer for this before it came out. I had just started my new job with the insurance company, i.e. bomb shelter of an office. And I remember seeing it alone in Texas in a movie theater, middle of the day on a Saturday. And I loved the shit out of it. I felt like they really did a service to the original Predator, and I liked that they were pumping new life into a dormant franchise. There you have it. Now you know why I love film. You know that I love this film for many reasons. I hope that Wham Bam Cam is doing all right, and you know that there will be some white-collar black belt episodes for your oral pleasure coming soon. And lastly, allow me to remind you, if you enjoy Slick Flick Picks, you cinematic fanatics, please do me and my bicolor cat Othello the service of going to Apple Podcast and leaving a rating and leaving comments. Your comments are very helpful. Your comments can shed light on the darkest of days, and I am open to recommendations. So if there's a slick flick pick that you would like me to do an in-depth review of, please do let me know, and I will see what I can do for you. Predators is a 2010 American science fiction action film directed by Nimrod Antal. It's got a good cast, Adrian Brody. Now, Adrian Brody's an Oscar winner, Lawrence Fishburne. 
he has quite a bit of clout in Hollywood. Alice Braga, Walton Goggins. Now, I love Walton Goggins. If you don't think Walton Goggins can act, I challenge you to watch the seven seasons of The Shield, that cop show on FX that came out years ago, and watch, well, all of the seasons of Justified, also on FX. He is known for playing very complicated characters, and he is a tremendous actor. He can do drama. He can do comedy. He can even be a goddamn action hero. But I highly recommend getting engaged and immersing yourself in a Walton Goggins experience. Now, Topher Grace, I could take him or leave him. However, I do recognize that he was a very interesting choice for this flick. It was distributed by 20th Century Fox. Well, no shit, it is part of the Predator franchise. It is the third movie installment of the Predator franchise. The film follows an ensemble cast who appear in an unidentified jungle among other proficient killers. They find that they have been abducted and placed on a planet that acts as a game reserve for two warring tribes of extraterrestrial killers. And, of course, they're actively seeking a way to get back to Earth. Now, interestingly enough, the producer on this film is none other than Robert Rodriguez. You should know that name. He has been involved in a lot of shit. But he had developed a script for this third film all the way back in 1994. Now, if this had been released in 1994, that would have been very fresh from Predator 2. But instead, it was a rather lengthy hiatus until Fox greenlit the project. Now, according to the producer, Rodriguez, the title Predators is an allusion to the second film in the Alien franchise Aliens from 1986. I promise there will be a slight connection to Aliens later in this Slick Flick Pick review. But the title also has a double meaning, referring both to the extraterrestrial predator creatures and to the human characters who are trying to kill them. Now, the filming took place in 53 days. To me, that's extremely rapid. So way to go. Oh, and also, not only did filming take place in Hawaii, which makes sense for obvious reasons, but also Austin freaking Texas. What's interesting is when I watched the director's commentary, some of the scenes that you would bet your balls were connected to Hawaii are actually in Austin, Texas. So it definitely keeps you guessing. Now, it grossed $127 million, but received mixed reviews. Praise went to the action, but people did not care for the thinly written characters. Yes, because when I go to see a film where muscle-bound, kick-ass humans are in a game-preserved battle with these humanoid aliens, I want the actors to be Shakespearean with their soliloquies. Are you kidding me? Just give me some action, please. Thank you. The film is 107 minutes long. This made a great summer blockbuster. It came out smack in the middle of July. The film looks hot. Everybody is constantly sweating. But because this cast, even though it claims they're thinly written, each cast member is different. They add a variety of flavor to this mega meal that we enjoy with our eyes. But Adrian Brody, he plays Royce. He's a U.S. Special Operation Forces veteran who has since been a mercenary for quite a while. Topher Grace is Edwin, a doctor who seemingly does not belong amongst this group of killers but he's ultimately a psychopathic murderer. And kind of like Dr. Kevorkian, he has been using his position as a doctor to snuff people out. And of course, he will have his own connection to the bigger picture plot as things continue. Now, Alice Braga is Isabel, a sniper from the Israeli Defense Forces. And she's dealing with some trauma. She failed to save her spotter 
during a mission and she's seeking redemption. Walton Goggins, who I've already mentioned, he's Stans, who's a death row inmate who was originally scheduled to be executed until he was nabbed by the aliens. And Oleg, now Oleg Taktarov, he was in a previous Slick Flick pick. He was in 15 minutes with Robert De Niro and Edward Burns. And he's part of the Spetsnaz Alpha Group who was fighting in Chechnya. Now, what's interesting is I get the impression that a lot of these characters were like mid-battle when they were abducted by this alien force because they're all in military garb. They have their weapons. Their weapons are loaded. It's not like these fools were yanked out of their beds in their tidy whities Lawrence Fishburne plays Noland, a United States Army Air Cavalry soldier who has been on this planet for multiple hunting cycles. And he's a bit crazy. And of course, the iconic, unmistakable Danny Trejo as Cuchillo, a ruthless enforcer for the Los Zetas Mexican drug cartel. And of course, Louis Ozawa Changchin as Hanzo, a Yakuza Inagawa Kai enforcer. This guy, by far, favorite character in the film, really wanted to see more of him, would love to see a prequel with him, would love to see some spiritual sequel where he doesn't die. This guy totally owns every scene he's in, from the moment he's on the screen to the moment he falls down in the tall grass. I love this guy. He rarely speaks and reveals late in the film that he is missing his leftmost fingers, having performed Yubitsumi, which as you know, in the Yakuza, taken from samurai tradition. If you fail, or if you fuck up, your bosses can order you to remove, with a very sharp katana, portions of your digits on one of your hands. Now, obviously, it's meant to be a painful punishment, and it also brands you, but the historical reason why they would perform this service is because a samurai relied on his weapon as a way of survival. So with every missing digit or component of a digit on your hand, you are thus unable to control the sword as well as you would with full use of all fingers. So it's also a lingering punishment in that sense. But about this character, I guess he used to be a guy who can murder someone without a qualm. But by the time he arrives on this alien planet, he'll no longer be that kind of person. Now those things are not explained in the script, but you'll get it when you watch this flick. Also, he used his kendo training for a scene in which his character uses a katana in a duel against the Predator. Antal, the director, a kendo fan, insisted that the sword fight look authentic. Well, I don't know much about that shit, but it looked pretty fucking amazing to me. Hence, my favorite scene in the film. Quinky dink, something more, maybe we'll never know. But I really love that attention to detail and authenticity. Starting to sound like a Clint Eastwood film. And lastly, Mahershala Ali. I cannot believe the amount of talent in this film that's claimed to be an action film with thinly incorporated characters. And yet Adrian Brody's an Oscar winner. Alice Braga has gotten all kinds of acclaim, both in film and on TV. Walton Goggins has been nominated for a shit ton of Emmys, probably even won some. And Lawrence Fishburne? Mahershala Ali is an Oscar winner? This is absolutely insane. But he plays Mombasa, a revolutionary United Front death squad soldier from Sierra Leone. They could have done more with his character. He's pretty one-dimensional. But I really like Hanzo. I like Adrian Brody. I believed him immediately. I like Alice Braga. I just, I really like this cast. Now, the predators in this film, they're identified by their masks and some of their markings and their armor. 
There's four different types. You've got the original or classic predator, which you would recognize from the first film. Then you have the tracker predator. Now the tracker predator, also known as the dog handler, that's the one that has the massive tusks protruding from his mask. The falconer predator obviously has the falcon drone that lands on his shoulder and shit. It's really cool. And then you have the berserker predator who just does not give a shit and he kills everything. There's that moment where Lawrence Fishburne is holding like a crowbar and he's like, come at me, man, come at me. And the berserker just blows him the fuck away. So there you have it. Now, apparently, Antal wanted each of the characters to be well-developed enough to be able to stand alone. Rodriguez, the producer, hoped to have Arnold Schwarzenegger play a cameo role as Dutch, but it ultimately did not happen. And again, they wanted Schwarzenegger, they wanted Schwarzenegger to be in Predator 2. Also did not happen, much to our chagrin, sadness, and inconsolableness. 60% of the film was shot in Texas in order to be eligible for a tax benefit. The film shot more exterior footage at Canyon Lake Gorge and Hamilton Pool Preserve. I am familiar with both of these locations as I used to reside in Austin, Texas. Now, Stan Winston did not return or anyone from his original company, Stan Winston Studios. However, Howard Berger and Greg Nicotero took over building the creature suits. Now, Nicotero, you might know that name as he is integrally involved in The Walking Dead with all of the zombie shit. In addition to the original Predator designs, the film features many new creatures never before seen in a Predator film, such as a new breed of Predators that belong to a different tribe, some that have been domesticated by the Predators for use in hunting, and other alien creatures, in this case something called the River Ghost, which you don't see near enough of, but they're brought by the Predators to this planet to serve as prey. Now a few quick reviews. After a string of subpar sequels, this bloody action-packed reboot takes the Predator franchise back to its testosterone-fueled roots. That's from Rotten Tomatoes. And then A.O. Scott of the New York Times said, Antal is a good enough action director that some of the combat is pretty exciting. However, when the story relocates to the Fishburne character's grimy, claustrophobic domicile, the movie turns static. See, people are never fucking satisfied. You give them Mad Max, which is just constant action, and they say, I need room to think. I need a moment of some quiet so I can recenter myself. You give people a film that has a shit ton of action, like this film, and you give about 10 minutes in the middle where everybody can take a breath, eat some disgusting gruel, and just chill out. And people are like, oh, the film lost momentum. No, I actually found the scene with Lawrence Fishburne in the middle to be very enlightening. Because much like these characters are trying to figure out what the fuck's going on, we as the audience are desperate to learn more about these kick-ass intergalactic masculine creatures. And this actually gives us a little bit of tutelage and points us in the direction of learning a little bit more about these badass predator creatures. And Lou Lubinick of the New York Post gave the film a positive review. After 23 years and three attempts, Predators finally delivers a solid sequel to the B-movie classic. He added, it's not exactly hard to predict who the survivors will be at the end of Predators, but it's a fun ride. Well, Yahoo! Now, this director, I'm not that familiar with his work, but I do know he directed Vacancy from 2007, which is a great B-horror thriller with Luke Wilson and Kate Beckinsale. He also directed Metallica Through the Never, which I believe was a music documentary on Metallica, and an action film called Armored, which I never saw. 
He also was involved in some television. He directed an episode of Wayward Pines, several episodes of Servant, and a couple of episodes of Stranger Things. Now, the taglines for this film, here's a few. Fear is reborn. The hunt is on. The most dangerous killers on the planet. But this is not our planet. I had some myself. These were contender titles, or possibly fill-in taglines. The first, Nolan's Land. Get it? Like, instead of No Man's Land, it's No Land's Land, because Nolan is fucking crazy. And lastly, um, permission to treat this as a hostile planet. For those lawyers that are listening. Now it's that part of the episode where we discuss TT, or Trivialized Trivia. What do you think about that, Othello? Oh. He just perked up and gave me the nod. I guess we are proceeding. It is time to kick the tires and light the fires, Big Daddy. Okay, that's from Independence Day. The hunting dogs are based on one of the creature's skulls, seen in the trophy case on board the Predator ship in Predator 2, which I actually reviewed that with my main man, Wham Bam Cam. Louis Ozawa insisted his character Hanzo fight using Kendo, as he is a practitioner of the martial art instead of using Kung Fu as most Hollywood films do. Now, of course, they have this new thing called gunfu, which you see predominantly in the John Wick franchise, where you're using martial arts or kung fu in tandem with your weapon, namely your pistol, where the pistol becomes just an extension of your body for purposes of catapulting this kung fu. And like I mentioned, Hanzo is missing two fingers on his left hand. The reason the Yakuza traditionally cut their fingers starting from the left pinky, is these fingers have a vital role in controlling a Japanese sword. Their loss would significantly impair a duelist. Hanzo must be a formidable swordsman to be able to fight in close combat as he did, despite the loss of his fingers. Well, no shit, he's a badass. Why do you think I love him so much? Now, Nimrod Antal specifically chose Adrian Brody for the main protagonist. He said it was a challenge in finding a balance. When we cast Adrian, There were a lot of people going, what? But at the same time, if we cast a Vin Diesel in that role, or anyone who is Arnold-esque, we would have been attacked for doing that. So we decided early on to go in a very different direction for casting. He also felt the soldiers should be portrayed as wiry tough guys, not burly men like Schwarzenegger. I cannot argue with the man. There is a soundness to that logic and a wit to that wisdom. Remember what everybody said about Michael Keaton as Batman and Tim Burton's Batman? They were all shitting on the idea, and then Michael Keaton was Batman, except no substitutes. That shut him up. Now, the name Nimrod, now obviously his name is different and he has an accent on the O, but the word Nimrod has some interesting meaning to it. A descendant of Ham represented in Genesis as a mighty hunter and a king of Shinar. Also, it can mean an idiot or a jerk. Also, Nimrod is a boss in X-Men. Nimrod appears in Marvel, Contest of Champions. Nimrod appears as a boss in the Uncanny X-Men. And in the film Days of Future Past, Nimrod appears as an alternate skin for a sentinel. One indication that the Predators have been using the hunting grounds for a very long time. When they first come into the Predator camp, there is a Neanderthal skull next to a human skull on the ground as a trophy. The Neanderthal subspecies became extinct 40,000 years ago. Now, I call BS on this because when I was working at my former company, there was a gentleman who was at one point in time my supervisor. He goes by the moniker Camo, 
and this fool was a Neanderthal. So there you have it. At around 50 minutes, the insectoid alien that appears is an allusion to the original design of the Predator from the first film, which was originally going to be played by Jean-Claude Van Damme. And I believe they call this creature the River Ghost, which is a pretty cool fucking name. Hanzo only speaks in one scene and has a total of three lines of dialogue. What a badass. We need more Hanzo. He doesn't necessarily need to talk more. I just want him to be around more. I want to see him chewing on that little twig that he has in his mouth. And I want to see him sitting Indian style as he's thinking shit through. At the point Noland, Lawrence Fishburne, is introduced. You hear, over here. And turn around. These lines are spoken by Bill Duke to Carl Weathers in the first Predator movie. Yes, obviously, this is a nod, like an Easter egg, if you will. But it also serves a dual function in that it reminds you of the Predator's ability to record and transfer sounds and data to each other across time. As the first Predator did not survive, this would have been the only way that the Predators would have been able to download this material. The tusks on the tracker's mask, like the dog handler, are actually from Predator Hounds. The River Ghost role was reduced in the final film. It was originally supposed to play a more substantial part, stalking the characters for longer and leading them to believe it was the one responsible for their arrival on this ghostly planet. The River Ghost was initially conceived as a means to display the original, unused Predator design created for Predator by Boss Film Studios. Oh man, Boss Film Studios. Who is the boss? That's an awesome name to have. But despite the change of direction, the creature still bears some similarities to the original Predator design, most notably in the appearance of its head and digit-grade legs. In concept art, the Falconer was shown with Freddy Krueger-like claws on his left hand. He would have likely used these to skin his victims. First of all, that's badass. Second of all, they probably would have approached some type of odd copyright infringement. But whenever I hear skinning, like skinning a human, it always fucks me up. I remember in season three of that TV show Dexter, they were chasing the skinner who would skin his victims, and it was just fucking terrible. Hanzo's final fight with the falconer predator is a homage to the scene in the original film where Billy challenges the jungle hunter. Unlike the original, Hanzo is victorious, but at the cost of his own life. I guess you could call that a stalemate, or maybe a Pyrrhic victory. Okay, this is very critical. For purposes of this paper-thin plot, or they would, or the naysayers would say, It is safe to assume that the super predators do not follow the Aucha honor code, as they do not demand fair fights, like removing their armor and equipment before engaging in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Instead, they attack their enemies as brutally as possible, killing them in a very merciless manner. It is also implied they have superior technology. While the visors of normal predators typically display organisms as blurry heat signatures, the super predators, or as I like to call them the berserker predators, resolution is far better, discerning much more details and even facial features. Not to mention one of them has a fucking recon drone. They also have a mode that can detect the source of sounds, like a heartbeat. Yes, this does happen in the film. It is possible that the normal predators have this as well due to general advancements in technology, but we never see through a normal predator's visor in the movie to corroborate this. Lastly, and this is all from IMBD per usual, the super predators could possibly take some type of drug or some sort of other enhancement which could explain their larger figures 
over the already masculine mainstream Yauchas. As what exactly makes these predators super hasn't yet been revealed, but given their different facial structure, it could simply be to them being a subspecies to the normal predators. This reminds me of the Blitzkrieg, where Hitler had his doctors giving the fighter pilots a cocaine speed cocktail to keep them up days on end so that the bombing would be relentless, unrelenting, and merciless. Interesting. Maybe they were predators. Now it's time to become game on a preserve to preserve our game. Predators 2010, this is the director's commentary with Robert Rodriguez and Nimrod Antel. They say that they started this film with Act 2. There were no introductions. This will set the pace for the entire film, with exception being that scene in the middle with Nolan where things calm down a little bit. But even when things calm down and they're in a dark room, the dialogue is very telling and it's very fascinating dialogue because like the characters, you are getting to learn so much about their killing cycles and their different seasons and why they're on this planet. In that sense, I think it's a brilliant filmmaking technique where when things finally slow down, they still keep it riveting by way of what they're divulging for the plot. Adrian, we'll call him the body Brody. They wanted something fresh for this role. Predators had already fought the muscle-bound type. They already fought all those beefy beefcakes that were down in Guatemala. They already fought Danny Glover, who's a large, ripped man. So maybe the Predators are seeking something leaner. Makes sense to me. Also, they said that only the right actor can sell a backstory on just a few lines of dialogue and their presence. Well, guess what? I totally fucking bought Adrian Brody as a mercenary. I was completely convinced that Hanzo has a tortured life, he's cut off his own fingers, he's learned his lesson for being too loquacious, and he has done some shit. I completely believe it. I love it. Now, the trap scene that they all come upon in the woods, to me, it reminded me of the traps that were at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but we find out that those traps were set by a fellow soldier in a last-ditch attempt to try to foil the Predators. Also. This is an obvious takeaway, but it was said very eloquently. When actors go to work, they're amongst other actors, but directors are solitary. This kind of speaks to their respective lifestyles. So it's important that directors spend time with other directors on these films so that they can keep a perspective and not feel that they're on an island or that they're holier than thou. I thought this was interesting. They also talk about how they wanted to incorporate the various hunting techniques that you would actually see in a hunter. They use terms like flushing, driving, and trapping, also baiting. We get to see more of that in this film, and for that, I, your worthwhile cinephile, am satisfied. And I'm impressed. Now they talk about some areas where they have these thick woods, especially thick pine trees. That was actually in Bastrop, and I am very familiar with Bastrop, Texas, so that was a hell of a filming location. Also, they talk about the value of not lingering over much on the predators, because you want to add to the mystery. And if you show the Predators in full frame too much, that can spoil everything and thus ruin it. I learned that the scene of the waterfall is actually Hamilton Pools there in and about Austin, Texas. So I found that a nice little throwback as I lived there for years, not at Hamilton Pools, mind you. Because if I did live at Hamilton Pools, there would be Cabana Boys and there would be, I don't know, I would say Malaysian, but in this case, it would be Austinian women that would be waving big palm leaves in my direction to keep me cool. Needless to say, every beverage that I consumed would be out of a coconut husk or a coconut shell. I did not live at Hamilton Pools, sadly. 
Now, I said that there was going to be a connection to aliens. Well, Walton Goggins, who plays Stans, he was kind of like the Paxton character from Aliens. You know, game over, man. Do you see how many of those fucking things there were? That guy. Also, the selection of Walton Goggins was interesting, as a director had not even seen The Shield. Had he have seen The Shield, where he plays Detective Shane Vendrell, one of the most memorable, twisted, complicated characters in TV history, who knows what would have happened. But they started calling Walton Goggins the thief, for he steals every scene. Well, no shit, he's amazing. The scene in the middle where you've got Lawrence Fishburne giving some soliloquy and giving some exposition. They did not want one character to reveal everything, but they did need an organic pause for the pace of the film. And I just thought Lawrence Fishburne was great, as did they. He has this samurai-type helmet, suggesting that their armor is coming from all over the world, and it goes back to, like, feudal Japan, perhaps even farther back than that. Also, it was Lawrence Fishburne's idea to be talking to a dead friend, i.e. he's crazy. And that was kind of a silly discussion in the first place, because... Lawrence kept asking the director, hey, what if we try this? Or what if I try to explain things to them this way? And the director just wasn't liking it. So finally he said, well, what if I'm just fucking crazy and I've been there too long and my mind's not right? And the director loved that idea. Also, I like that the director said, Austin is weird. Long pause. Location-wise. Clever. Keeping it weird, are we? Clever fuck. I like that. Also, everything had to look alien. Even these jungles had to look alien. They said that if they just picked any forested area in Hawaii that looked very lush and beautiful and touristy, that wouldn't work. They wanted things to look sterile. They wanted things to look gnarled. So I thought they did great with what they had and how they utilized the filming locations. Okay, there are three berserker predators. Why are they berserker predators? Because they're fucking crazy. They don't really follow the sense of honor code. They kill things brutally. And then, of course, the official names that they used on the set You had the falconer predator, the dog handler with the tusks, and then Mr. Black or the black-coated predator, ultimately the berserker predator. We pull our embattled but effectively functional samurai sword to achieve suicide via otherworldly blade duel. Boom. 20th Century Fox. Note that at this time, 2010, this was the 75th year anniversary for 20th Century Fox. Also Troublemaker Studios. This film starts with Adrian Brody fast asleep in free fall. In Point Break, it took over an hour to get to a skydiving scene. Here, we start off in free fall. What a fucking way to start. I also find not only the beginning of this film, but several scenes throughout, like with the dogs and everything else. This feels the most comic book or graphic novel-esque, in my opinion. When you think of the two preceding films and this film, yes, You can take elements from the first Predator and the second one and the urban environment that could have come from a comic book. But this film, the way they talk, the way the film moves, the grandiose entrance where he's in freefall, I feel like this could have been segments taken out of a graphic novel or a comic. Also note that all of these people that get dropped in on this planet, they're already in full military garb. And we learned that a lot of them were like in mid-battle when they were abducted. Seems kind of intense to me, but hey, I'm not a predator. But it's better than them being asleep in their bungalow with a cabana boy. I find that it works for purposes of the plot because they have to have some gear with them. Otherwise, they'd be making fucking spears and they would be making little wooden traps and throwing rocks at these berserker predators. So at least they had something to shoot back with. 
But then you get thud, like Adrian Brody hits the ground hard, and then bam, the music starts playing, and you get the Predators on the screen, and you just know that you're in for a fun fucking ride. This is not a pretty jungle. Also, they have weapons with ammo, but they don't really seem to have any food, or so it seems. Maybe they've got a couple of tens of deviled ham, who knows. Now, I like the incorporation of the minigun. That's a shout out to the original Predator, of course. And I like how the director said that Oleg, who plays the Chechenian or the Russian that's fighting the Chechenians, he looks like Charles Bronson. And I totally agree. The face, the swagger, the muscular build, he is a contemporary version of Charles Bronson. And I love Charles Bronson. I don't know if this is like a religious subtext, but most of the people that were abducted, they claim they saw this bright white light and then things went lights out. So I think it's just the Predators had some sort of a men in black memory flash on them or some shit to both incapacitate them and cleanse their memory. But who knows? I love the scene where the Yakuza removes his shoes. He has been dropped on a desolate planet. He knows not what the fuck is going on, but he is not going to get his $10,000 boots riddled with mud. And I respect that. So he's going to walk around the jungle barefoot, braving snake and toxin and deadfall and pitfall. He will do this because he takes pride in his kicks. And I like that. I learned that IDF stands for Israeli Defense Forces. We're wondering, why is the doctor there? Why is Topher Grace here? He should be in a basement somewhere from another decade. Get it? Got it. Good. In all fairness, I thought the reason that he was among these soldiers was to give them a fighting chance. In case they got injured, he could repair them. In other words, if you had a small elite military unit, I'm sure that all of the soldiers would at least have passing knowledge with field dressing, but I thought that they dropped this doctor in with them to patch him up in case they got injured. Well, I was fucking wrong. What a sick twist that would turn out to be. We see skull trophies at the bottom of this weird alien cross. And it's disturbing, it's disconcerting, but you've seen skull trophies before. So this is clearly some type of shrine. Also, we learn that the sun has not moved. I am not an astronomer or an astrologist, but I can tell you something's fucking up. Also, it's fascinating to note that this plant that is found on this alien planet has terrestrial properties. Because the doctor recognizes this plant, he names it, I think in Latin, and recognizes it to have poisonous properties. That's weird. Why is this alien plant on an alien planet also something that grows on Earth? But you know what? Maybe it does. Because this looks a lot like Earth. I mean, the air is breathable. It has water. It has luscious life and animals. There are bugs. So I don't know. Maybe it's just kind of a reasonable facsimile to Earth. Now, when they put the leaf in the water for this makeshift magnet, that shit reminds me of The Edge. If you ever saw The Edge, that movie in the 90s with Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin, it is a great survival movie, one of the best. And Anthony Hopkins does the exact same thing. He takes the minute hand from a watch and he magnetizes it by wiping it on his sleeve. And then he places it on a leaf in the water. And supposedly by magnetizing it, it should point in one direction. Well, this magnet is spinning all around. What the fuck? Now we learn about the Spetsnaz Alpha Group, the Los Zetas Cartel. The Los Zetas, proper pronunciation is a Mexican criminal syndicate, formerly as one of the most dangerous of Mexico's drug cartels. They were known for engaging in brutally violent tactics, beheadings, torture, and indiscriminate murder. While primarily concerned with drug trafficking, they also got into other nefarious rackets. For purposes of 
apropos timing, this organization existed in 2010, but ultimately it broke away and formed their own subsects of criminal organization, rivaling the Gulf Cartel. But for when this film was made, the different groups that each actor identifies with or is representative of, they were based on real organizations, like the RUF or Revolutionary United Front. They existed. And then he refers to my favorite character, the Yakuza, as the Inagawa Kai, which is the third largest of Japan's Yakuza groups with approximately 3,100 members. Wow. And of course, Adrian Brody, who's no fucking fool, he notices that all of these characters are heavy hitters, but the doctor does not belong. Well, we will find out that the doctor does belong because he is a psychopath murderer and he has taken many, many lives. I love the attire or the wardrobe on the Yakuza. I love how he has this flashy pistol with an ivory handle and it's silver. It has a compensator on it. Very sleek outfit. I love that outfit. When they find all these primitive traps, these primitive traps that would have been like Raiders of the Lost Ark at the beginning, that this was a soldier's last stand. Now that soldier, that dead soldier's chest is busted wide open. This is just like the previous Predator films. And like I mentioned with Wham Bam Cam, I cannot get past the fact that it looks just like a chest burster, the same type of damage that would have occurred had an alien come from within. Crazy shit. We learn the deadfall rule that you're supposed to apply five times the weight of the target animal in order to crush it. There's conflicted information on this. Some information I found says the deadfall is built around a large weight, usually a rock, that is triggered to crush the animal. This heavy rock must be large enough to asphyxiate its prey. The best practice is to find a rock that is three times the weight of the animal, so that one says three times, but then I found the general rule of thumb with a deadfall trap is that the weight should be five to seven times. Well, holy shit, if you're hunting a large animal, how the fuck are you expected to lift five to seven times the weight? That sounds very challenging. We're made aware of the fact that this is another planet. Holy shit, this is huge. And I like the character's reactions, and I remember seeing it for the first time, and it's like, wow, this changes everything. Also, it happens in a blink, but Something is stalking them and it flies by them, but they don't really see what it is. I identified with my own peepers and intellect that that is the Falcon's drone. The Falcon drone that is being flown by the Falconer, I think that is what's flying by. Is this the drone keeping tabs on them? Similar to what Darth Maul uses in the Phantom Menace, it's just sending out these droids to kind of do your legwork for you. Also, I think Topher's reaction, and this is early on in the film, I think it's forced, which is by design. Because he's pretending to be somebody he's not. He's pretending to be a non-sociopath. But when he thinks that Alice Braga gets killed, he goes, No! Yeah, we're not buying it, pal. This base camp set looks fucking awesome. I totally believe that there are berserker predators running amok, killing everything, skinning it, and drinking the blood. Totally believe it. I like the little makeshift fires. And I love the falcon perching on the falconer after everybody takes a dip in the lake. The whole scene where Danny Treo is sitting there dead, and he's still talking. Help me. Help me. That was absolutely insane. The suspense that builds in the first Predator, when Arnold Schwarzenegger is walking up to try to get the Predator to take the bait and get taken in the trap, that was extremely suspenseful. But this holds a candle to that. This is really cool in the way that they have the horror elements bleed through, because you realize even after being shot and not reacting at all to the bullets, that Danny Trejo is not only dead, but he's been dead a while, and this is clearly a trap meant to bait them. I love that scene. I remember I was actually on vacation in Austin, Texas, visiting from another city. 
And I was alone in my hotel room and it was about 10 o'clock at night. And I didn't want to go to sleep yet, but I didn't have shit to do. And this film, Predators, happened to be on the hotel TV, probably on FX. And I loved the shit out of it. And this movie saved me that night because it gave me something to watch. And I remember that scene in the hotel on the TV. But we learned through this lady that in 87, which is the year that the film Predator came out, she actually mentions the country, Guatemala, six men and one CIA liaison. She actually heard Dutch Schaefer's debrief, and she knows what happened to them. She learned that he used mud to block his heat signatures, which is important because Royce will employ use of this later. Then we get the Hemingway quote. Now this sniper is cool. I really like the sniper. I think she does a good job. And the music throughout this film, it's a little less bombastic than the prior films, but it's used expertly and surgically, and it's incorporated amazingly. So I really like the throwback to the music. And then, of course, you get over here and turn around, turn around. This is straight out of the original Predator. But these throwbacks don't feel forced. They're making organic connections to things that we already love and admire, and they're honoring it, okay? They're not making a mockery travesty out of it. And then I love Nolan's dialogue. I'm the one who got away. I'm the one that you don't fuck with. Now, these old drills that were left behind, these massive drills look awesome. And this will catapult us into the third act of the film, ultimately. But I like when they're inside and you get this kind of warm yellow-orange glow of the lights. It looks warm. It looks like it feels warm. And for the first time, our ragtag band of anti-heroes, they're outside of the elements. They're safe, or so they think. Now, Noland identifies himself as Air Cav. Well, that's short for the Combat Aviation Brigade, or 1st Cavalry Division. It's a divisional aviation brigade of the U.S. Army. And it was activated on the 16th of September, 1984. Ah, 1984, that's a very important year for me. You can use context clues to discern why. Also, he mentions Ride of the Valkyries song, which was played in that great film Apocalypse Now. But he also refers to the man in the orange jumpsuit as Agent Orange. I take this to mean that he's a Vietnam vet and that he saw combat in Vietnam. But who the fuck knows? Maybe he was in some regular army prior to 1984. Maybe he'd been in the military a long time. He definitely has that thousand-yard stare, but who knows? We learn that the body armor that he's wearing disrupts the heat signatures. He also says, well, I've killed two, maybe three. Okay, bro, this isn't asking you, like, how many girls you've kissed. This is how many fucking lethal predators you've executed. It's either two or three. You need to remember that shit. I don't care who you're talking to. I don't care whether it's Wilson from Castaway, but you should be able to remember how many predators you've dispatched. We learn that he's been there for 10 seasons. He also tells us that they learn quick and they adapt. He then goes on to say that they come in threes, always in threes, like the three wise predators. Also in the film Aliens vs. Predator, which is a spinoff from both the Predator and Aliens franchises, they attack in threes as well. So there is some lore to back that up. This is what I'm talking about. We may not have any action here for eight to 10 minutes, but everything that Lawrence Fishburne is divulging is vital, and I found it to be fucking fascinating. Also, we learn that there's no edge to the preserve. There is no end. It's just all preserve. You can't outrun it, you can't outflank it, and you can't escape it. This is what this planet is here for. It is a hunting ground, possibly a breeding ground, but there's no getting away. And then I love the scene with the Yakuza slash contemporary samurai. This is old. Very old. They've been doing this a long time. Fantastic. Love it. And then we get something of a Scarface reversal where Nolan says, say goodbye to your little friends. I'm sorry. 
Walton Goggins says, well, shit, I think it's Royce. Somebody says, say goodbye to your little friend to Lawrence Fishburne instead of say hello to your little friend. But in both cases, they are discharging a firearm. So I thought that was interesting. And I wonder if that was intended because Rodriguez would have incorporated as much witty dialogue referencing other films as possible, similar to something that Kevin Williamson would do. But I don't know. Also, there's grenades, there's mines, there's a flare. This guy has been scavenging and collecting shit for his own survival. Now it's quick, but you realize why Lawrence Fishburne saved them, took them to his hideout, and then tried to smoke them out and kill them. He's only interested in self-survival, and he just wanted to take their goods. Had he been successful, he would have walked away with a shitload of loot, but then he would have had to get rid of the bodies, of course. I think that this interior set looks amazing, and of course, when you watch the director's commentary, you learn more about all that went into that, and it really is fucking phenomenal. Great set work. Now, this tusk predator, or the dog handler predator, he gets it. He gets a claymore right to the face and the thorax. So it's a hell of a way for Charles Bronson to hit him with that dead man switch. See, with these predators, Hanzo is actually a rare delicacy because the vast majority of these characters that are able to defeat the predator, it's one of three ways. You either have to use their own technology against them, which of course is used in Predator 2, or you have to fight them mano a mano with primitive weapons like Hanzo does. And it's very rare success that he had. It only came at the price of his life. The third way you can defeat the Predators is to take them by complete surprise and turn their hubris against them. So this Tusk man got way too close to Charles Bronson and he paid the piper. And then I love the line from typical. I mean, this is exactly what you would expect Walton Goggins as a rapist serial killer to say on death row. Hunt my dick, bitch. And I love his delivery of it. Also, this berserker predator. Now, when he said that, he pissed the berserker predator off. You don't want to piss off a predator, let alone a berserker predator. But when he did that, oh man, he ripped out his spinal column, just like he did to Billy, just like he did to Bill fucking Paxton. So in a way, Bill Paxton from Aliens, who Walton Goggins' character stands as kind of mirroring, he meets a similar fate. Now, what is the definition of berserk? Out of control with anger or excitement. It's a rage, like the berserkers were said to have. Only while the old Norse berserker frenzy was probably subject to some poetic license. Now, Wolverine, you know Wolverine from X-Men. Wolverine is a mutant with healing powers, and so he actually is effectively invulnerable. Because you remember, if you watched the old comic books and comic book cards, which I had several of, Wolverine was known for having this berserker rage. And I believe it was the item of some of the comics in and of themselves, where the term berserker actually originates from, and the Old Norse written corpus, berserker were those who were said to have fought in a trance-like fury, a characteristic which later gave rise to the modern English word berserk, meaning furiously violent or out of control. This is very fucking cool. In this moment, Adrian Brody looks like he's ready to die. The predator has his red laser beam fixated on him, and he just kind of stands there like, all right, go ahead and kill me. I don't think this was a ploy. I don't think it was a rope-a-dope. I think he was just ready to die and accept his fate. When the spinal cord is removed by the Berserker Predator, it's pretty freaking harsh. By Walton Goggins. Of course, by this point, we've already lost numerous amount of the main characters. But the Falconer sword death with the Yakuza slash contemporary samurai, it's absolutely brilliant. If the whole film was filmed with that level of confidence and dexterity and vision, I think this may have been the greatest Predator movie ever. 
but it is a very meticulous, well-shot scene. And it's a rare scene in that tall grass with this barefoot samurai. I could not have done different. I would not have changed a single thing. You don't want it to go on too long because then you're going to be doubting its authenticity. You're going to say, well, Hanzo would just get cremated by this dude. But no, it lasts just long enough and he is able to outflank the predator and die as a result. I also think that the falconer is more sporting than the berserker predator because the falconer could have just blasted Hanzo away, but he didn't. He saw what he was trying to do, fight him mono e predatoro, and he took him at his word and they fought. I also love after they both die, the camera pans away, probably on a drone, and it just pans over these two dead bodies in the high grass. Looks amazing. We learn that Topher is a liar because he shows that picture. Oh, I got two kids. Please spare me. No, you don't. You're a liar. Those are not your kids. That picture of those kids belonged to another of your group, and you're trying to pass those children off as your own because you are a sociopath and you're a survivor, you piece of shit. And then you get another throwback to the original Predator where Adrian Brody's like, I'm here, kill me, I'm right here. Again, doesn't bother me, it's not forced. Also, I have come to the opinion that the Berserker Predator has more sophisticated or more durable armor than the regular Predator. So maybe the regular Predator has like iron or steel, but the Berserker Predator on his mask, it's like titanium or some shit. Because he just like skull bangs that Predator into submission and it's pretty fucking ferocious. He participates in a decapitation and he takes that head clean off the original Predator. And I am confident if he has time, he would take his skull as a trophy, no fucking doubt. And then the Berserker blows up the Predator ship as it's leaving. This leads me to believe that he had rigged that ship a long time ago by way of booby trap. And he was just waiting for it to try to take off so he could blow it the fuck up. Fortunately, Adrian Brody missed his ride. So the ship blowing up had not one living soul inside it. Now we're getting these tribal drums that we so very much enjoy for the first two Predator films, and the Berserker Predator is fixated on the fires. And this is where he's saying, come on, come on, do it, kill me. But what's interesting is the Berserker Predator hesitates, and I think it's because he's heard this before, because he would have heard this from the Predator's mask in the first Predator if we're operating under the assumption that all the things that were said and all of the observations made by the original Predator downloaded into the cloud of these predators. Now, this is your second The Edge reference, because when you have this ring of fire after Adrian Brody dumped a bunch of gunpowder and set it on fire to confuse and disrupt the Berserker Predator, that's also taken straight out of The Edge when they're trying to find the courage to fight Bart the Bear, which is the name of the real bear that is used in The Edge. And now this predator can see a heartbeat. Well, we did not know that he could do that shit to find his way, but there you have it. These predators are even more sophisticated, and they can see in even new and unexpected ways. Now, this green goo shit looks fucking awesome. It looks so good. It's such a good contrast on their dark bodies, and I love it. By the way, bye-bye arm, as Adrian Brody is beating the shit out of this berserker predator with its own weapon that I think was originally in the hands of Lawrence Fishburne, but who knows, but he's fucking it up, which leads to your second decapitation of the film where Adrian Brody takes his own trophy i.e. the Berserker Predator's fucking head. Now that is a just dessert, because just moments ago the Berserker was taken ahead of a Predator all for himself. It appears at the very end, you've got the victors, you've got Adrian Brody, and you've got the Sniper. They look up at the sky, and they see what looks like a hodgepodge mixture of new soldiers that are parachuting down, and the river ghosts that are in their respective cages that they've already had to deal with. 
It leaves it open-ended for a potential sequel. Now, there will be no direct sequel to this film. It just kind of fades out into the night. That's okay, because as a standalone film, it works fine. Now, I like the throwbacks. I like the explanation of Guatemala and what happened, but it's not essential to enjoy this film on its own merit. I love this film. I love Predator. I love Predator 2, as you already know. These both made the cut. They're both slick flick picks. Wham Bam Cam, with his great knowledge and his passion for those first two films, was a welcome addition in explaining and breaking down our mutual love for those films. But I alone also love Predators. I loved it when I first saw it in the theater in Texas. I loved it when I was rewatching it in a hotel room by myself many, many years ago. And I love it still. I have probably seen this movie about nine times, and I'm going to see it many, many more before I'm through. Now, Ebert gave it two out of four stars. Not bad. He goes on to say, Predators may be the first film in history to open with a du ex machina. Yes, the entire plot and all the human characters drop into the movie from the heavens. The last thing they remember is a blinding flash of light. Now they're in freefall, tumbling towards the surface, screaming, grabbing for ripcords on the parachutes that they don't know they had. The first to land with a mighty thump, like I mentioned at the beginning of the film, thump, and then you get Predators, and the music is playing and it's great. Well, that's Adrian Brody. These people are savage, professional killers from all over. A mercenary, a Japanese samurai, Israeli markswoman, a mass murderer, an African warlord, and so on. They discover they're on another world, a perfectly terraformed world, it would seem. The gravity allows them to walk normally, and they can breathe the air and drink the water. But Royce notices something. The sun never moves. They arrive in a clear space and realize there are three or four moons in the sky, which are either very close or very huge. You know, I was just thinking, these predators are indiscriminate killers. They're not seeking people because of their age, gender, their race, their culture, their nationality, what flag they fucking fly. The traditional predators, they do not seem to want to kill women. They do not seem to want to kill pregnant women. They do not seem to want to kill children or people that are, I'm guessing, old or that are very ill or that are unarmed. They have a sense of code. These berserker predators, though, they did drop a shit ton of cultures onto their planet. You've got a Japanese guy. You've got a Mexican guy. You've got this Israeli gal. You've got Adrian Brody, who's kind of a hodgepodge of things. You've got men. You've got women. You've got people from all over the globe. I think they're just looking for what they consider to be a threat or a valid battle that they can embroil themselves in. And I appreciate that because it cuts past the politics of all that bullshit, as he would go on to say. As every science fiction fan knows, if a planet always presents the same face to its sun and is ringed by bodies apparently larger than it is, it will quickly become molten lava pulled hither and yon by vast tidal forces. Wow, I didn't realize that he was a fucking meteorologist geologist. But never mind. After the visitors are attacked by humongous beasts of prey, Royce figures it out. They're in a game preserve. He figures out a lot of things in the movie which might have been more fun if he hadn't. I don't know, Ebert. R.I.P., of course. I don't know, because we learn what Royce knows, and I don't think that that cheapens or weakens or in any way undermines the film. Here's my question. Would a person who knew nothing about the prior works or any component of the Predator world, if they just stumbled upon this movie and were expecting it to be like a straightforward military-esque action movie, and then they uncovered this shit, would that make the movie better? or not? That's a good question. That's a fair question. 
The problem is that you know how people are. They question everything and they're constantly thinking, pondering, trying to find gaps in the DNA sequencing of the plot holes. People would be asking questions. So if the actors can arrive at the answers just a moment before the audience starts squirming in their seat, maybe you stay one step ahead. But here comes some really vicious warthog-looking creatures. They weigh about a half a ton apiece, move as fast as lions, and have so many horns and spikes that fornicating must have to be a sometime thing. Okay, that's funny. I like how instead of just being shocked and appalled by the grotesqueries of these creatures, I like that Ebert's trying to think about how they copulate. But lastly, this is a good one. There is, of course, one woman in the film, Isabel, Alice Braga. She and Roy slowly bond, and eventually, at the end... Oh, but wait, I can't tell you if they kiss. That would be a spoiler, he says. But one thing you know for sure. The alien warthogs don't spend a lot of time Frenching. I just thought about this. The original predator, Anna, lives. In the second film, that awesome lady that grabs Bill Paxton's balls, she's pregnant, so she gets to live. And then in this film, the sole female is injured, but only injured by a human, not a predator, and she lives. And then going off into the future, the alien versus predator spinoff, the main girl lived in that, and in the The Predator with Olivia Munn, she lives. I guess it's just a coincidence that no women, no main women are killed. I guess you could say that in AVP, some women die, but I don't know. It's just, it's an interesting take. I didn't really think about it until I sat down and marinated on it. Maybe it's fair to say that the predator is attracted to the female form. Maybe doesn't want to take them out. Although you would think he would want to take them out because then he could collect their skulls and have trophies to stare at. What do you think the predator does in its downtime? I mean, after it sharpened all of its makeshift weapons and it's healed itself with its self-surgery kit, I wonder if it has a lawn to mow. Oh well. There's just some things we're not going to be able to solve by the end of this. I love this film. I love doing these movie reviews, whether I'm by myself, whether I have guests. I can tell you there is a pronounced dichotomy. When I review one of these films by myself, I really get to think out loud and I get to explore these crevasses and these nooks and these lacunas of the film. And it really makes me feel like I'm exploring it adequately. When I have guests on, that doesn't always happen because we get so engaged in the back and forth and it's a great fucking time. I just recently had my main man brother Clint on to talk Gran Torino and I didn't get into all the little areas of overlap and the areas of inconsistency that I wanted to. I didn't get to explore every conceivable facet, but that's okay because they add flavor and they add personality. But I like doing these regardless. It's a really fun time and I really hope that you're enjoying these slick flick picks. I can talk forever. And when I did the game, when I did the game slick flick pick, that was my longest single recording ever. I guess I have a lot to say when it comes to my favorite films ever. Yeah, that fits. In fact, it's probably going to happen where one of my reviews will surpass the length of the film itself. Holy shitballs, Batman. The Michael Keaton Batman, that is. What a fun time. Well, hey, listen, please go to Apple Podcast, rate, rank, and leave me comments. Your comments are the lifeblood green goo flowing through my Predator veins. I very much appreciate it, my cinematic fanatics. This third Predator feature, Jettison drops us unceremoniously onto their planet, their preserve, their pad, where the worst mammals of our planet were grabbed, nabbed, and some are introduced mid-fucking-stab. But in this coerced congregation of degenerates, it is the slight, obsequious Doc who's radically bad. 
but the lone contemporary samurai who both slays and dies in one slice, whose victory makes me glad, death makes me sad, and abbreviated abridged screen time makes me berserker mad. Royce plays against cast type, but this film's brazen trailers validate its hype, for the sole femme fatale sexy sniper will snipe while lives are dispatched with one wrist blade swipe. Remember, cinematic fanatics, these predators can mimic voices that sound eerily similar to our own. They will bait, flush, corral, and trap should you go off alone. They track with a falcon drone. They trick with cloaking decoy clones. They were generous to assume the cost of having these mercenaries flown as they are dropped into the vast, lush, unknown. We get to witness alien versus alien, human versus human, human working in tandem with an alien to thwart a berserker alien, and as alien as the landscape, the planetary proximity, the innumerable moons and advanced technology, the poisonous plant life and respective toxins are oddly and uncannily terrestrial. Whether machete, rifle, pistol, or dead man's claymore, we are visually treated with mortal combat kills and gore. We both abhor, deplore, and yet unblushingly crave more. Othello and I remain always your fellow fiends for film, your worthwhile cinephiles, while you are our cinematic fanatics. Keep that popcorn fresh, or at least fucking edible. For my next Slick F-Stars pick, pick 28, Slick Flick Pick, Launch Key Largo, Jetpacks, Diving Masks, and Shark Attacks, Thunderball, 1965, my premiere episode of the Unbonded series. What a phenomenal treat this was. I adore you, Cinematic Fanatics. You're worthwhile cinephile checking out. Falsetto out.